Hey, welcome to the Street Shots Photography Podcast with the Switch to Manual guys. I'm Antonio, and Tom is in school again. Poor guy is uh, working away, trying to get a, become Dr. Tom. So he's not available today, which I'm bummed at, but uh, he'll be on the next show. We'll do a, I think we're going to be recording a show in the next couple of weeks uh, when he has his schedule freed up. So we're all rooting for Tom. You know, he wants to become a doctor. Uh, Dr. Tom, on top of his uh, pastor hat, he'll be a doctor pastor or something like that. And uh, we'll see him next time. So, but before I get started with this 40th episode, I'd like to ask you guys uh, for some help. So, Tom and I have been doing this show since October 2014, I think. And we've been able to carry the cost of producing the show. But, uh, you know, times are getting a little tough for both of us. Tom is in school, obviously, and he's, you know, not struggling, but, you know, he's got to cover his school costs. And uh, for me, it's being a little difficult trying to hold all uh, my expenses down. So, you know, I'm sort of like hate standing here actually with my hat in my hand, but I'd like to ask you guys if you might be able to support or help us support this show. So on our Podbean page and our website, we've got a PayPal donate button. So if... You guys can click it and, and uh, as like Tom likes to say, send us some chump change our way. We'd really appreciate it because for a little bit would go a long way with us. Uh, it would help us produce more shows and, you know, cover some of the costs. It's not that expensive to do the show, but it is, you know, one of those extra expenses that we both sort of, you know, we have to eat ourselves. And we're just hoping for a little support from you guys. So if you could do anything, click on that PayPal button, send us some chump change, and uh, we'd really, really appreciate that. And while you're doing that, maybe go to iTunes and uh, give us some, you know, give us some ratings. That would help us uh, raise up, I guess, in the uh, ratings department there on iTunes and maybe get us more listeners. So anyway, if you could do that, that'd be great. So that being said, this is our 40th episode. Uh, We've made it to 40. Uh, we're on our way to 50, so consider when we do 50, we're going to have a big bash of some sort, I think. I don't know. <laughs> and But on this episode, I've got a friend of mine who I met on Twitter a, lo- a while ago, and I think we met in person once, uh, photographer Jim Goldstein out in San Francisco. So, hey, Jim, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on to the show. I've been wanting you on the show for a while, just, you know, figured last minute you were able to come in and uh you know have a talk and sit down and chat with us on the street shots and so we're you know uh, if tom was here he'd be really happy that you're here and i'm really happy and it's funny it's because the last uh, interview i had was my friend keith goldstein so it's like we got the goldstein brothers going back to back, <laughs> back, to back. yeah so <laughs> uh, how you been i've been doing great thanks yeah i think the last time we saw each other was a couple years ago at Photo Plus Expo in New York, and that was uh, a brief but fun conversation, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, and I think, uh, I can't remember if we were doing the show then, if I talked to you about that, but uh, you were in town in the show? I was actually, I was actually working at the time. You I was, um Yeah, I used to be part of Borrow Lenses, and so oh, yeah. I was there at the show doing that and having some fun in the process, and uh, yeah, it was... It was an interesting time. Photo Plus Expo is one of those, one of those shows that there's lots and lots of activity, so it's never, never dull. Do you come to this show if you're not working ever, or just for yourself? Uh, I missed it last year. Okay. I wasn't. With, I, I'm no longer with the company, so I, I did not make it out. It was always 
poorly timed because it was around Halloween. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think the few years before that, I kept missing Halloween with my son. So I was yeah. very happy to be home. <laughs> you got you got trick or treating, of course. Yes, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, they always have it around. They used to have it a little bit past Halloween, uh, but now it always seems to be around that weekend. So, yeah, the irony was that I think like last year it wasn't. It was like it was after. Yeah, and it wouldn't have been a problem. But the few years before then, it was always <laughs> like Halloween weekend. Had you been coming to the show before that too? Once in a I while? did. I present. I presented once, and so I went that way. But I, I hadn't been uh, just to walk the floor. So everybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, the Photo Plus Expo happens in the fall in New York uh, at the Javits Center. I've been going to it since college, so a while, and it's been amazing to watch how that show has uh, changed over the years. I, I, I want to say devolved, because yeah. it's not the right word, but it's certainly changed a lot. It used to be a lot bigger, and then the economy took a turn, and it's kind of cha- morphed with the industry. Yeah. I mean, there used to be a whole section devoted just to uh, laboratories and printing. Like, a, literally a whole section of the uh, Javits Center would just be these giant machines and printing presses and developing tanks and stuff like that. And that's obviously completely gone. <laughs> you know? Maybe, like, for their museum piece. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know if you noticed last year, I didn't find, I didn't see Kodak at all. Did you? No, I- no, when you were there. I, I don't think I've seen them there in, in several years. Yeah, that's a that's a sad story for another for another show. But you know, <laughs> yeah. thinking that Kodak has gone the way of the dodo or something like that is kind of a, you know, it's a little sad. Just about. Yeah, sad but not not unexpected. I think they didn't do a good job with their businesses. But well, again, I'm not here to diss Kodak too much. But. <laughs> I want to sort of structure this a little bit like, you know, you and me were sitting in a bar and of course I've got my cocktail ready, but, uh, we're part of switch to manual. Um, and we like to talk about people's origins into photography. So I'd like to really just get that out of the way. Cause I don't know how you became a photographer, although I did skim your site and it seems like you do have an interesting background. You said something about genetics, but I want to know how you got into <laughs> photography. Yeah, um, yeah my, my background is very much um, in science. So I, back in the day, back in school, I studied genetics and um, advanced biology and did that for a little while. And <clears throat> I always had an eye for photography. Um, one of my earliest disappointments as a kid was asking for a camera because <laughs> uh, I had an inclination of wanting to uh, explore photography because um, my family used to have... National Geographic magazines all around, and I just used to be enthralled with it. My grandmother and grandfather used to subscribe to Life, and I used to see their their really old copies. And you know, back then, photography had a much more magical aura to it. Um, it was a lot rarer to run across people that said that they did photography, at least on a professional level. And um, it was just a, a greater barrier to cross. And so. Um, I was always a very poor student, so I never had the ability to afford gear. And when I was a kid and I asked for a camera, I got like a, I had in my mind, I pictured like, I'm going to get like a DSLR, (laughs) even though I didn't know what the term was. And I ended up getting like a Kodak 110. Ah, the old 110. Yeah. The cartridges. Of course. I I was very disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) What were you expecting? Like a Hasselblad or something? 
No, just something. Yeah, something um, with a lens, something with an actual lens that you could turn, right? Yeah. So that that didn't really turn into much other than me taking goofy kid pictures. And then I kind of abandoned it. It wasn't until I was working that I had some extra money and then uh, could buy like a, a good camera. And I'd say like in the mid 90s, late 90s, that's when I really started to get like super serious and uh, hone my skills and lots and lots of practice and basically am self-taught. So. Oh, so no school at all for photography? None, none. Just um, <laughs> just <laughs> a, a massive dysfunction and obsession to like really learn it. And my background, to circle back with the science stuff, um, you know, that whole scientific method. And I used to run labs, mm-hmm. um, you know, at a university. And then I did it at kind of like an industry, uh, private industry. And that repetition and scientific method kind of ingrained itself in me and I applied it to my photography until I really figured out, you know, what to do. And I I basically have just been a sponge ever since for (laughs) figuring out how to do things. And I really like the the creative component of it. Um, And at the same time, I, I geek out on the science side. Ah, so you, you got involved in the film day. So you were doing, uh, were you doing your own developing and stuff? Darkroom no, and I, I never did my own developing. Really? Uh, for oh. for me, my my biggest attraction was color photography. Oh. Um, so it was a little bit more costly to do your own color development, and it wasn't really practical for like my living arrangement either. It's not like I, right. I owned a house or had room in the places that I was renting to have like a dedicated space. Hmm. So. Um, you know, my influences very early on were um, a lot of color photographers. Color became, you know, the big boom. You know, uh, we're talking about film. So, you know, when Velvia came on on the scene and uh, scenes could be incredibly contrasty mm-hmm. and, and vivid, um, it was very attractive. And I was also simultaneously really big on the outdoors. Um, so it was really fun to kind of uh, try to capture the things that I was seeing and uh, bring that into the the context of my view of the world. And so the influences, again, were like um, like Art Wolf and Galen Rowell and all these other uh, color photographers that were establishing themselves at the, at the time. That makes sense if you were uh, you know, self-teaching yourself that you would probably go into color. Because if you were going to school, most likely you would have started with black and white because they start every off, everybody off in black and white. But, you know, you're sitting there looking at a stacks of, National Geos and uh, Life Magazine, all those, ma- you know, they're all color. So what else are you going to do but color? Yeah, I mean, it, it was relatively new too, right? So there was, it was the big buzz was, you know, kind of getting, I wouldn't say it was like the, the first tier of, um, you know, color, obviously. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of that was Kodachrome and whatnot. But to see it so vivid like that, that was a, a huge attraction. Um, it just made it seem like a lot more new, a lot more dynamic. And I don't know how, how else to describe it. It was just very attractive to me. It still is. And I, I will do black and white at, at times, but it's just not really where my passion is for some reason. So, nah, yeah. what are you going to do? <laughs> just, just keep shooting. Yeah. Were you shooting uh, negatives, slides? What, what did you find yourself doing? Slide most photography time? mostly. Yeah. So you ended up with the finished product when you were done. Yeah, it was really, really, really cool. I mean, of course, um, I, w- I was very fast to be online to share photography. So it was 
you know, you earn your stripes in the whole process of getting it from slide to digital. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, it was very painful, you know, by today's standards. <laughs> must have had a lot of frustrations, because I remember I did, and uh, getting my slides to digital when, when I was, I guess the first thing to do was like, you know, using a Nikon scanner or something like that. Yeah. Getting yeah. It, it just, it always softened the images and it never yeah. showed the full range of color uh, that you could, you know, the color space is just great for online, but it's still limiting. So you never got the full glory. But the, the irony is that, you know, it's like showing slides was never really a super big thing. You know, it's just like died out so quick. Think about like a slideshow, you know, just sitting there and looking at them kind of thing or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, every once in a while, I'll bring it out and look at stuff. But, you know, it's like digital just became so much, so much easier. And then when I, I was, you know, more actively blogging and podcasting, you know, I, I eventually was just so happy with digital being around that I basically swore that I was never going to do film again. And then uh, I want to say like uh, last year. Yeah, well, in, I was looking at your blog in November. You wrote a three-part thing about going back to film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I ended up circling back to it. Um, the reason being was that I, I ended up... <laughs> Are you just being a hipster thing? <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, so the way it works out is like, you know, even though um, I've been saying all these years that I would never do film, there was still kind of like this aura of um, very few cameras that if they ever became available and uh, within a price range that I could afford, I would definitely kind of jump on and and kind of like redo it. And this is always like, you know, buried deep down. And I had like a, uh, an alert set up on eBay, mm -hmm. just kind of tracking this. And I had this alert set up for like two years, you know, just watching, just seeing the prices going. And one of the few cameras that kept holding its value was the Fuji GX 617s, which, you know, the 617 format is really attractive to me for some reason, because I associated it back with um, some of these really iconic images that I used to see in the 90s in various magazines, these like really wide, uh, large format or medium format, you know, color photos. And so, to this so let me day, pause you for a second. Let me just describe to people. First of all, I, I saw that, that post and you had a picture of this Fuji GS 617. Yeah. Way back when, when it first came out, I wanted that camera so bad. Uh, <laughs> I was awesome. working at, I was working at an image bank, the stock photo agency, and I was also submitting to there. And we had a few photographers who were shooting with that camera and they brought it in. It was huge. It's a huge camera. Yeah. It's got a pretty interesting lens and it's got this lens cage on the outside of it to protect the lens. And the GX 617, 617 means six centimeters by 17 centimeters. So it basically made a giant piece of panoramic yeah. film. Yeah. It's crazy. It's like four exposures per, per, per roll. one twenty roll. Yeah. Would that camera fit 220 film in it? It does. It does. So you can get eight, seven or eight exposures. Yeah. But I, I end up doing 120. Yeah. It was one of the kind of panoramic cameras I wanted. It was another camera called a Wide Lux, which yeah. was a different kind of panoramic camera because it used a rotating lens and a, and a moving film back to give you a, sort of yeah. the same way that an iPhone does panoramics now. Yeah. And those it, are still really cool. Those are still in vogue. They are. And the thing I wasn't always crazy about was that the way those cameras created two vanishing points because the lens spun around right. and you ended up with this sort of distorted image. Whereas the GX 17 was basically just, it's like a large format camera that's just truncated to this six by 17 piece of film. So it was almost like if you were shooting an eight by 10 camera and you were just using this piece of film. So there was no distortion really other yeah. than the, the regular lens distortion, but you were pretty much getting 
the perspective that you saw with your eyes. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that for the audience because they're like, what is this camera? I was like, I wanted that so much. Do you still have it? I, I do. And actually, just um, a, a little bit of trivia. The wide lux that you're talking about is the camera that uh, Jeff Bridges uses, oh. the actor. Yeah. And he's got like a published book and his photos are really awesome. So if somebody wants to see an example of what that looks like, that's the that's what I would recommend to yeah. go it's see, a, search out. It's a great camera. It's very mechanical. So yeah, yeah. But I, I still have the six seventeen. It's it's really fun and fantastic. I have lots to write about it with it. Actually, in <laughs> fact, one of the last trips I took last year uh, was basically me in kind of like a time machine, <laughs> kind of, where I went out with um, very nineties gear. Um, <laughs> so I, I went out with the GX 617 and then I also went out with I just blanked on the the number I have to look at my own blog <laughs> but one of the first uh Canon DSLRs that came out around the same time and it's oh. like a two it's like a two megapixel DSLR <laughs> it's really funny wow. and yeah, so I went out with ago. both of those and shot the same things and kind of compared and I actually had <laughs> I also had a Canon 5DSR with me as well. So um, it was a, kind of fun to go out with these three different uh, types of cameras and see what they're, they're like. I'm going to push you a little bit about this going back to film for a second, because I read your blog stories and, you know, there's a nostalgia to it and everything that you were talking about film, like for me, I could not wait until digital kicked in. Like when we were making this transition from, you know, scanning our slides into, you know, six megapixel cameras. I, I could not wait to get rid of the scanning process. Yeah. And I want to add this, that I could not wait to get to a professional digital camera where I could shoot pictures. Now I was doing it for stock. So I had a reason for it. And film was a real pain in the butt. Yeah. But you were saying, I don't know, the opposite, but this idea of going back to it and slowing down, bringing all that stuff with you from the film days that you could bring back to, you know, shooting with this monster wide camera. What was that about for you? It's like, I don't ever want to go back to film. Really. I'm, I'm happy that it's gone or at least that it's, you know, and I don't have the nostalgia. Uh, no, that's not true. I have a little bit of it. Yeah. I, I don't have, I don't have much nostalgia for it, to be honest. I mean, the attraction was, so let, let's, let's go up a level. Right. I mean, um, the way I look at photography in general is that you can uh, do the same thing that a lot of people are doing uh -huh. um, and try to carve out kind of like your own take on it all. Or, or you can try to find something that's uh, semi-unique. And I, I don't mean this in the sense of just trying to like be hipster. I mean in the sense that, okay, let's just say you, you shoot digital, right? Um, you know, one of the things I took away from being at an online rental company was that, you know, there's, there's all this crazy amount of gear that's, that's all the same. Uh -huh. And people just geek out on the, the gear itself so much. Um, and everybody is uh, like going over everything with a fine tooth comb and picking out like all the faults with the gear and why something is better than another. Or people get tribal with one manufacturer versus <laughs> another. And we'll the talk reality about that later is too, yeah. that, you know, to be creative um, sometimes means that you have to embrace the things that people think are flaws. So maybe that means getting a very unique or different lens or embracing the faults of 
something and making that into something that's stylistic. And, and that's what makes uh, images stand out, right? Everybody can go out shooting with um, the latest Fuji point and shoot or, you know, mirrorless camera or to be fair, like with a DSLR, everybody can be geeking out and loving, you know, the 24 to 70 lens for Nikon or Canon. And th there's thousands of them. There's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of these, these lenses out there. So that means that there's going to be millions of photos out there that are all using this lens and they ha have very similar um, aberrations and flaring and they have a similar look. And then somebody's going to come across a form and see an image that's soft and has weird flares and mm -hmm. makes it look like it has a different aura to it. And strangely enough, that crappy camera, crappy lens is the one that's going to grab people's attention because it just happens to be different. People are just so, not used to seeing it anymore, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, you have to embrace the things that are different in order to sometimes create something that's a little bit uh, creative and stands out. Yeah, it's to be like different. you're saying what's old is new again, though, right? In some way. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, it doesn't have to be like old either, right? I mean, if well, there's a flaw with a, a modern lens or you find that there's some weird quirk, then embrace it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like make it into something that, that works. Find a way to make that work. Um, so... You know, combine that with the notion that the world is just so preset crazy right now. Right, right. You know, it's like, to me, having grown up with photography as I have, uh, to the degree that I have anyway, not that I'm like the super old timer, um, but, you know, it's, presets seem to be kind of like a callback to, you know, like the pre-stamped out style that film provided. And uh, the the presets kind of bother me a little bit, to be honest. It's I, I don't know that it's convenient. Like if you're a wedding photographer, like I think it would be very, very helpful. If you're a fine art photographer, I don't know that that really, it's like, it's not your style. It's, you know, something else that somebody put out there. Well, how, how are the presets different than, you know, different film stocks that you're using? I mean, just to push back a little bit on that. I'm, yeah, not, no, I'm not a big fan of presets either, but, you know, let's. It's totally fair. Um, I, I kind of just think of them as like the original <laughs> presets, so <laughs> yeah. to speak, right? And you go back to being different. And I guess this is where I am susceptible to the hipster argument. You know, there's just not a lot of people shooting film. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very hard to recreate these looks with presets. I've seen the ones that, that try to. It's, yeah. it's still not the same. You know, um, you, sorry, you mentioned in, in your blog that you, you acknowledged the problems that you had in the, you just said it before about scanning them and you're losing some of the, you yeah. know, the, infra, the, the beauty of the film gets lost in the translation. And that was sort of what I was, that's kind of what I reacted to in the time when I was making the transition was, you know, when film was the end product, you know, and then you sent it to a client or you got a Cibachrome made out of it. And you probably remember Cibachrome, probably yeah. one of the nicest print processes for transparency films uh, done by Elford. You know, when it was that process, that was great because that was it. You had a slide or a negative, you would print it and you were pretty much done with it. But making that transition to digital, there was always something lost. And that was the frustration I had. And it, and it sounded like you had some of that as well. Yeah, no, I, I hate that. I mean, I, I still hate that. But, you know, at some point I, I really would love to be able to take a high resolution scan or, um, you know, even find a... Uh, someone who can work with the film and actually make a, a print from it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, 
it's really, it's not like I'm doing tons with with the camera, but it's definitely something that that I like. And you you touched on. I mean, there there is a component. You know, I went on this trip last October, and it was just like going out with digital cameras and with um, the film camera. It just became so striking the difference that the technology makes and how you work. Digital is so freeing and it's so fast that sometimes it's a detriment that you're not really thinking through what you're doing. Uh-huh. And the whole slow photography movement, you know, I, I get, I, I never really jumped on the bandwagon a hundred percent. But I will say for fine art or for landscape photography, for sure, um, being able to kind of just slow down and work a scene for a longer period of time um, and, and really take the time to, to analyze and really try to analyze the scene. It, it helps out. I mean, really what it comes down to is that, you know, your, your film is, has a greater value at that point, right? You only have yeah. so many exposures. You're only carrying so many pieces, so many roles. So then time isn't the commodity your film is, right? That's what you have to, to preserve. Whereas with digital, I go out there and I feel like time is the commodity and it, it's bottomless. It's a bottomless right. pit, my, my CF card. <laughs> so like I'll be all over the place. It's like I'm darting around like a hummingbird. And that's not really, unless you can catch yourself doing that and slow down, it, it does become a problem. Um, and I see it all the time. I'll see people dart in and out mm-hmm. with their cameras. And it's great. You got your, you got your, your snapshot. But are, are you really capturing the essence of, what you're photographing and by and large the answer is almost always no i mean so many of the photos look so so much the same these days right you know just as you're saying this i'm starting to come up with a theory i'm thinking about this for the first time right now i wonder if that's coming from the fact that people are no longer going to photography school to become photographers in other words you know in in a sense you're included in this a little bit because you didn't go to school i did go to school but I'm wondering, like people, especially now, they're growing up in the digital age, and there is that, you know, automatically built in, you know, rush, 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 take pictures, pick pictures, put them up on Instagram, fast, fast, fast. Whereas when one had gone to school, at least my experience was you, you, you had to work slow. You had to work slow to learn the process. And it well, sounds like from what I was reading that you were sort of relearning the process again. Like what you would do if you were going to school again, taking out the camera, taking out your light meter, being very aware of what you needed to do to create the picture. That is something that is a very learning process. You know, you don't just run out with that G, you know, that 617 camera and start snapping shots with it. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if that, I wonder if that makes any sense is as people are, you know, moving into this era where f- they're learning photography not in a systematic way, and I'm not making any judgments about that. I'm just saying, well, that, you know, one of, you're, one you're of just the things that's really fascinating about my experience is that, um, you know, for me personally, like one of my demons is I try to suppress um, being a snob about the quality of the shot. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you talk to one of the the old time pros like like Art Wolf, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, the obsession on sharpness and um, artistic and these other things, you know, that is that is not at top of mind for for modern photographers. Like for for me, like not only did I want to learn photographic technique, but I really wanted to capture the highest quality image that I could. Mm-hmm. And if that meant 
shooting with mirror lockup and moving slow and working a scene to like look at all kinds of different um, compositions, um, you know, making sure that the settings are in such a way that there's going to be minimal noise, maximum sharpness, like all that element of it. Like I, when I'm out on my own and over the years, I, I've, I've learned that and obsessed on it. But in today's, in today's world, you know, the platforms that people are sharing their photos, that's not necessarily required. And so, you know, I, I look at the modern ways of photography and it's an extension of how we communicate these days. It's as much part of a text message as mm -hmm. it is anything else, less so a gallery experience for people. So people can, like, it's, it just turns my, my stomach a bit, like, <laughs> I'll be talking to people at a, at, while I'm shooting and, and some guy runs up sets up really fast, takes a photo, and he's like, and he's like, yeah, I can't wait to put this through HDR or I can't yeah. wait to like post-process this. And it's like, one, you have a blurry image because you just like ran right. <laughs> to take right. the photo. And, you know, it's the the output and the need and the, what people are doing with the photog photographs are just very different. So I don't knock people for it, but at the same time, that's just not where I'm at with photography. That's n That's not why I got into it. Well, it's also, it sounds like you're not into it just for the end result. You're into it for the experience of the photographic process. So the going yeah, I mean, and being slow and deliberate is in an end of itself in some way, you know? It's not, yeah. Some of my peers are much more militant about, you know, um, connecting with your subject and and bonding with it. And, and I am, I, I consider myself a little bit more on the moderate side um, hmm. with that, but what do you mean by that? I mean, like, you know, hugging the tree kind of thing? Or, I don't know. <laughs> when you mean no, bonding. I mean, if you... Because you're talking landscape, so I'm thinking of your work. What would that yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you think in terms of, like, I have friends like um, Michael Gordon and Guy Tall, and, you know, they, they have a much deeper connection with their subjects. You know, they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're much more meticulous in terms of how they, how they look at their subjects, how they want to frame it. You know, there's... It's much more of an, an intimate type of work. Um, you know, Michael, for example, works uh, with large format black and white, mm -hmm. and Guy Tall has worked with everything, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I respect their work a great deal. They're, they're very, very knowledgeable. Um, and I think they're a little bit more philosophical about things as well. You know, they'll pine for some elements um, a little bit more than I will. But I, I definitely connect with that. And... You know, not not to ramble too much about it, but I think that, you know, you you shoot what you love, and I think that if you're if you're not putting a little bit of yourself in what you're photographing, you're not really showing something different to the world. Um, there, there's a lot of things that are the same <laughs> out there. Um, oh yeah. You know, and what's funny about this is like we can circle back to the six by seventeen because, you know, I went out on this shoot, I got stuff, <clears throat> I went to some very um, commonly photographed locations, uh, an example being like Mono Lake, which is not my favorite location to shoot because it it's very easy to set something up there. It's okay. not like you're going to get anything like super, super unique unless you're like in waders in the water, which you really shouldn't do. Right. Um, Mono Lake is also very reflective, right? It, it is. And what's so funny is I did a morning shoot there and um, <clears throat> I'll speed up the story a little bit. I, I get there in the pitch black before uh, sunrise. 
and um, I'm getting my stuff and getting up the courage to step out in like really cold weather <clears throat> and grab my gear and go hike out to where I'm going to go test out the 6x17. And four cars pull up, the workshop dumps out, and I'm like, great. <laughs> so all these people dump out with their digital cameras, go out there to uh, take their images. The instructor goes off in the opposite direction, strangely enough. He's like, um, I'm out of here. <laughs> to, get, to get a shot that's where I'm at. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I take the photograph and, you know, I move on, right. And I worked at the scene for the morning and I wasn't looking to get something like super unique and different as much as I was pining about this earlier, but more so just to get familiar with the camera and I get back. And at the same time, right. We talked about like eBay and setting up these, um, alerts. I've also been tracking like, uh, signed first edition books from different photographers. Uh -huh. And so I, I, Happen within a week, I pick up a copy of uh, one of Galen Rowell's books. And, and I get it, and I'm really excited, and I'm looking through it. <clears throat> and this is literally like two days after I scan all my film from the shoot. And lo and behold, I, I kid you not, is the exact same photo <laughs> that, that I took, right? I mean, there's no surprise there, right? There's only so yeah. many lookouts at yeah. um, Model Lake. and But he used the same camera. Oh, I mean, boy. obviously, lighting and conditions were different. Um, but by and large, it was the exact same thing. So what's funny is that, you know, a lot of this stuff is cyclic, you know, I'm sure everybody was trying to get this photo back in the eighties when he took this, this image or nineties, whatever. Um, and here I am just testing out a camera and just happenstance getting the, the exact same, same yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> image. Funny. So it was very funny to me, you know, it was very humbling. I wanted to say this too, because, you know, we're talking about this experience you have with this camera and you're going out and slowing down and what's stopping us now from doing the same thing with digital cameras. I mean, there's nothing different We're we're sold this idea. We can take a bazillion pictures and we can process a thousand of them in Lightroom in 10 minutes and do all that. But there's nothing stopping us from taking this camera that is a digital camera going out and taking five pictures and saying, I'm done. Like, yeah, there's nothing there's no a, rules that say that we can't do that. I think a lot of it is that it there, look, look, when I set up that six by 17, I mean, it takes a lot longer. It, I got to make sure that it's stable on the tripod. I got to make sure that the cable release is on there. I got to like frame things. I move it around. I'll, <clears throat> I'll do like a, um, with a light meter or another camera, I'll kind of meter the scene and then I'll put the roll of film in if it's not already in there. And you know, I'm much more, uh, careful about you know like exposing those four frames uh -huh. whereas digital and i caught myself doing this you just go out and it's like you take photos for insurance um i'll take sister photos much more frequently oh yeah there's um and i've got decades of experience under my belt and i still will do this where it's the insurance factor is just this huge thing that bears down on you strangely enough when i started shooting time lapses for example <clears throat> like five years ago or however long ago it was um i found that i took fewer uh still photos because uh, i'd always go out with two cameras mm -hmm. i set at least one up if not both cameras for the time lapse but strangely something clicked in my head where the time lapse would be running and then with the other camera i'd take like five photos and I don't know what it is. I really think it's the insurance side of it. Like, I, I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything because I had the time lapse running. But at the same time, <clears throat> I'd be like, yep, that's the point. Take the, take the still. 
and I wouldn't have any qualms about it. It was like, okay, that's great. That's exactly what I needed. Um, but you don't, you don't have the insurance on the 617. No, but you'll, so be much more, mean, you'll be much more careful and reserved about what you try to do. Like, you'll wait for the right lighting. You'll wait for the right timing. Yeah. Whereas, you know, like, I go out to, I harp on Tunnel View all the time because I'm spoiled in, in California and I can go to Yosemite whenever I want. And I'll stop by Tunnel View and kind of scoff at the crowds. But, you know, like, how many times is that? scene been shot and really the ones that are going to stand out are when the conditions are like super super awesome mm -hmm. or super super unique and that requires a lot of waiting people aren't going to stay there and wait around mm. um well that's so, a, that's a big difference between you know someone who's taking it seriously and who's someone who's just really rushing out to go and get back and do an hdr yeah, but that's that's kind of part of the point, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. people people don't have to wait around. They can make images, and I'm all for making an image and bringing your own vision that way, right? I mean, there's two lanes to this road. Um, you know, it just depends on what kind of philosophy you're trying to follow. Yeah, and I think digital has given us this notion that we need to create um, insurance because. I think it's kind of sold that way. Well, it's I mean, sold that way because like, well, the, the card could fail and your hard drive can crash. And, the, you know, there's all these things that are built into digital that are forcing us to then go out and create thousands of pictures, just make sure that we don't lose any of the pictures in the first place. Whereas film, you, you, you kind of threw the dice a little bit, but generally you're like, you know what? It's probably going to be fine. You know, the lab is not going to screw it up. The x-ray machines are probably not going to mess it up. You're not going to lose it necessarily. You do make some insurance pictures, especially with this camera. And if you're only shooting four exposures at a time with this uh, 617 yeah. camera, you, you want to, you know, make sure you get at least a couple of shots in there that, you know, in case it gets scratched and stuff like that. But the, <clears throat> yeah, the insurance was never built with, into film. You know, it was yeah, just you're, like. You're dealing a lot with opportunity costs, yeah, you know, yeah. with both formats. Yeah. I mean, the opportunity cost is greater on the digital side in the realm of am I missing another photo opportunity? Like, I can capture this really fast. And I want to get to the next one. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. with film, the opportunity cost is, am I going to waste the film or am I going to try to time this and wait for the moment that I think is going to be the very, very best? Because you only got four exposures. And right, right. for me to change the role, you know, if the light is changing really fast, I don't want to be in a situation where I'm going to be stuck trying to change role and then to miss the lighting as right. it's changing. How long does it take to change the role on that camera? Well, I mean, if you're really experienced, like I was a real buffoon with film, um, <laughs> to be honest, I, I would go out and there'd be an instance where like I'd shoot and then all of a sudden I get back and I'd realize that crap, the film didn't catch. Oh, <laughs> and, and I just yeah, I hated that it. feeling. Yeah. It was the worst. And you know, what I found with film also is that, um, the pain associated with like soft focus mm -hmm. or a missed exposure, like me personally, I got more bothered. Like it just to me so much. This is why I hated film too <laughs> and was happy to break away. Um, it's because I just felt so miserable when a photo didn't turn out. I mm. felt much more disappointed. Whereas with digital, I missed the photo and for whatever reason, I'm just not as really? sad about it or really? angry. What, what's the difference? I mean, if you went out to this location and you missed the light and in your, you missed the shot it's, on your digital camera, you're getting, how could you not be as because usually I have so many different copies of the image uh, okay. that I usually have something else to kind of fall back on that makes me, that kind of softens the blow. Mm -hmm. 
it's not like that for everybody, but for me, it still is. So yeah. I will force myself to still go out with a film from time to time because I love the format, mm-hmm. uh, but I still hate a lot of the elements of film. I really liked shooting it. And yeah. then when I came back to try to process it and handle it, I just was miserable again. Yeah. Like I said, for me, it was like anything that have, if the film was the end product, I'm, I'm fine with it. But transitioning to digital was just like, you know, let me just cut that out of the process and go right to, go right to digital. I mean, the first digital camera I have, I think I paid $900 for it. It was this little um, Casio camera with a bendy lens, which I still have, by yeah. the way. And it takes a, I think it takes a double A battery or two, and it still works. And I think funny. I paid 900 bucks for it. And I was like, this is where I'm going to be from now on. But yeah, um, what's, what's really funny was on this trip, I, I didn't remember the name of the camera before, but I brought a Canon D2000. Really? Wow. Uh, which was, yeah. um, I also found on eBay. And it's really hard to find. And it was like the first Canon branded DSLR. It was like two megapixels. I mean, it was just so funny. But the images came out. I, I, I did a YouTube video on it to compare the D2000 versus the 5DSR. Uh-huh. And, and the images still hold up really, really well. Really? <laughs> and the irony is that, um, <laughs> you know, funny. I, could, I could post those photos online and the only people that wouldn't know the difference are the people that would want um, a really large version of it for the right. web. Right, Oh, that's funny. But, you know, for like a blog and for like your standard image sharing, nobody would know the difference. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't be able to get the same you know, high resolution prints out right, of it right. necessarily, but but suppose people are watching, they're looking at pictures online anyway. It's just they're like, oh yeah, cool. yeah. So, and which also I thought was really comical because everybody just frets over the gear so much, and it's like, right. well, I could go out there with a, a '90s DSLR um, and still get really great images. So, yeah. Do you print any of your work, by the way? I do selectively. Yeah, for uh, yourself, or I mean, I'm I'm assuming people buy your pictures too, but. Yeah, I mean, like for yourself, I have it where people can order it and it yeah. just goes straight to a print house. And then there are some images that I do myself. Yeah, uh, I was thinking with these six by seventeens, you know, the prints you can make on those. If you get a good enough scan, it could be really, really nice and large. Yeah. So. Yeah, someday I'm gonna. I still want to <laughs> kind of sharpen my skills with it. I felt like a, a noob again. Yeah. I was very insecure uh, shooting with it, but. Well. Let me go into something because it just reminded me that uh, about slowing down and I made this connection. Um, so uh, let me just tell the audience, Jim has been doing, I've been seeing a lot of his um, astrophotography pictures, uh, landscape astrophotography pictures on his Facebook feed. That's where we're also connected there. And I've been really digging those. And as I was looking at, I was reading your blog posts and then I'm looking at the astro shots and I'm realizing there's a similarity between that and film because the astrophotography shots, you do have to slow down. Yeah. I mean, it's a slow process. <laughs> and it is very slow. And you might get I don't know how many shots you might get a night, certainly not a lot, maybe not more than 4 that you do on the 6x17, but you're not getting a lot of photographs. And I was thinking, wow, that's, you know, here's a you know, something that digital really helps you with making uh, astrophotography and you're back to the process of like sitting, really thinking about the shot that you're going to take and executing it and maybe only making a few exposures. Yeah, I mean, you make or you may make a lot of exposures, but it ultimately makes just a few images. Right, right. Yeah, because you're doing uh, image stacking, which I don't know anything about yet, but I'm gonna learn. Yeah, I, I did. I've done both. Um, I think it was when uh, the government shutdown happened, and it just happened perfectly when I was um, going on a road trip. Oh, <laughs> so the, trying to go to parks. The national parks <clears> closed. And right. at that time, I I went out with I want to say I had four bodies with me, mm-hmm. four camera bodies. 
And, you know, if you're doing this slow type of process and you want more exposures and more compositions, the answer is more cameras. Um, <laughs> so I was running around really? at night right, in these different all... locations, like a madman's working like three, four cameras. Ex explain that a little bit to me. So, so for example, like if, I, if I'm going to run a series of images, uh, either time lapse or, you know, uh, star stacking for star trails, you know, a single exposure could be 90 minutes to two hours, right? Uh -huh. So if I'm not going to drive myself into the ground, and even so this is insane for most people, if I stay up in the middle of the night and I do two or three exposures per camera, I, I'm really not walking away with that many images. Uh -huh. And if I'm out for three nights, for example, you know, one camera at best, like like where I'm not sleeping at all, uh -huh. Um, that's three images per night per camera. So that's nine images, you know, and if you think in terms of like how many digital photos you take on a shoot, right, um, right. probably taken a couple dozen to a hundred, right? If you're really trigger happy. Um, so for astrophotography, you really have to be selective. I mean, there's, a, there's a lot of pre-visualization and, mm -hmm. um, some of the stuff is, uh, knowing, you know, where the stars are going to be in relation to foreground elements um, or trying to get like a sweeping band of stars um, across the scene. So, you know, there's a lot more visualization and planning that's involved. And so it kind of is similar to film in a way where you become much more selective about how you uh, try to capture some of these scenes. And then if you want more images and more compositions, um, then you just use more cameras. More cameras, yeah. Makes sense. And so I mean, there's been several shots where I've gotten like, well, this would be great as a, a portrait and then, you know, maybe uh, a landscape as well. So you, I've you done have the cameras set up right cameras, next to each I, other, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of and then I get like really upset. I've been on other shoots where I'm like, oh, I should have done it this way. Like, <laughs> I'm bringing more cameras now. Don't beat yourself up. Well, you can always do it again. But uh, Lots of beating up. The shot that triggered this in me was, uh, I just saw you posted a couple of days ago of a tree. I think the title you have it is bristle, bristlecone pines star yeah. trail. And it's yeah. this, I'll describe it for people who are listening they can look at the, uh, you know, we'll post it in the show notes and you can go to Jim's site, but it's this old gnarly tree and it's reaching up and it kind of looks like a, to me, it looked like a hand reaching up and there's, um, sort of a, like a gap in the, in the branches where you've managed to put like the North star and yeah. all the stars are circling around this circle that's uh, that you can see in the uh, in the tree, and I was blown away by that, especially because you're lighting the tree, like you're light painting the tree. I'm guessing to get some yeah. like, flashing the tree. I don't know what you're doing. No light painting. Yeah, and uh, you know the exposure is great. You know there's an, there's just enough light on the tree that you can see detail, and it's not overpowering. The stars are great, and they're f almost like a full circle. I can't. Were they full circle? No, not full no. circle. So it look, it looks a like a full arc. circle. Um, yeah, and I it's mean, fantastic. Um, you know, and then what will blow your mind even more is that that is a that is not stacked. That is a continuous exposure on my DSLR. Can you quickly explain stacking without being too technical? Because actually, I don't know. I, mean, I hear about it, and I haven't really never read about it. But if you could do it like a quick, sure, sure. Um, uh, I have an ebook that kind of details the technique in. Oh, you have and, an ebook. And a lot more detail. But what happens is that, you know, digital cameras don't do very well with long exposures is the the consensus for the most part, right? This right, goes back right. to like, you know, when digital cameras first came out, you get amp glow and 
with longer expo- exposures, which is like a like a purple or pink light that shows up in the corners. It's the sensor heating up and it emits its own light, and uh-huh. so it registers in the image. Um, so what people do to get star trails with digital cameras is they will take a bunch of photos back to back without any break. It just uh-huh. fires off like 30 seconds or four minutes or whatever length you want to shoot. And the, they just, it's back to back images. Um, and so because it's a shorter exposure, you don't get any of this amp glow. Um, the images are clean in terms of noise or cleaner. And then what you do in Photoshop is you take all of the photos and combine them as a layer. Uh-huh. And then you blend them with the right blending settings, which is huh. lighten. And then only the highlights show through all the layers. And then highlights you get this continuous uh, streak of stars. Ah, um, but see. this photo, because it was super cold, and what brings about amp glow is when the sensor heats. So if it's super cold, conceivably you can run these long exposures and um, have minimal amp glow. And so I was doing a test this night as well. I did uh, I had a 5D2, which was this camera for uh-huh. this image, and a 5D3. And interestingly enough, the 5D2 had less amp glow than the 5D3. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, and this was the fourth camera set up that night. Uh, so I had three other cameras shooting at the same time. And this was my, hey, what the hell? <laughs> like, yeah. Wow. Why don't I try to set this up as a, you know, something to pass the time? That's and a nice way to pass out. your time. When you say the shorter exposures on the image stacking, you were like, so a shorter exposure would be like a four minute exposure or a 30 second exposure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, not so like, not ninety will, minutes. Yeah, like when I do star stacks, even though it's much more masochistic of me to do it this way, um, I'll shoot thirty second exposures because then I can make a time lapse and I can do the star stacking. Um, the masochistic side comes with how much your computer is taxed, um, mm-hmm. right? If if I do thirty seconds versus four minutes, then I've got like eight times the images to deal with. Right. Um, it's very taxing on my computer. computer. It takes a long time. Yeah. I'm I'm going through the gallery now, and are you shooting a lot uh, also with moonlight to get exposures? Like I think I see some in the uh, is it Yosemite? And yeah, it's like it looks yeah. like the trees and the the mountains are lit up. Or is it what's most what's of them are moonlight? There's a couple. Yeah. There's one that's kind of like a very dreamlike starry sky and Milky Way, mm-hmm. and the trees are actually um, lit with my my headlights of my car. The, the shot where you're pointed up, looking up, yeah. straight up. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah. Well, it, this gallery, when, when I post the link for it, everybody should go look at the stuff because for me, I'm a big fan of science fiction. And to me, a lot of the stuff looks like you're on another world. Um, the rock formations that you chose to highlight don't look of this earth. I know, that really excites me. Awesome. So well, just I'm glad you enjoy it so much that you want to talk about it because they're a lot of fun to shoot. Yeah, I've done one, maybe one or two shots. You know, I wouldn't call them astrophotography. Basically, I was taking my uh, my Fuji X100T and sitting on top of a roof of a car and pointing it up at the sky and taking longer exposures. But exposures enough that I could see stars with. But the excitement of the receiving end of that, when you start looking at the stuff, and you're just like, my God, I just caught something that's, you know, billions of miles away and lights coming in. It's just, it was really exciting. So... Um, yeah, I'm, look, I'm looking at your stuff and getting inspired. Wow, thanks. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm glad that it's inspiring. I mean, um, you know, we talked about film a lot before. Astrophotography is um, 
really neat because it still has the, kind of like that element of surprise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like film, you never know what you're going to get. Right, right. And astrophotography, it's often the same. Like you don't know if a meteor is going to go across and you'll be surprised by that. Or, you know, if the stars just happen to be lined up in a way that you hadn't anticipated that um, creates a, a unique look. So there, there's a lot of fun things about it that can still surprise you. Is that why you do it? To be surprised? Part of it. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of people that could say that astrophotography with Milky Way stuff is getting overplayed. Um, oh, the don't new, listen to them. Because the, the new technology, you know, makes it doable, right? You couldn't, you couldn't capture this stuff before. Um, Let me just pause you there for anybody who's listening. Just, you know, when I hear that kind of stuff from people, I want to tell them, don't listen to them because you've never taken that shot before. True. Just because everybody True. else has gone, you know, to the Grand Canyon and taken those shots, you have not done it yet. So screw that. Go off and do it and, and don't listen to anybody who says this stuff is overdone because they're the ones that want to sell the prints because they're thinking that you're going to interfere true. with I second them. that that sentiment. <laughs> um, and a lot of it is, you know, like there's just so much of the world to explore and to see and um, there's lots of natural phenomena that haven't been photographed because the timing is so unique. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very difficult to recreate these things. I think it's, um, was it Ansel Adams? Is, is it Monolith? I think that's the one. Um, where he's high up in the valley and there's mm-hmm. half dome and there's the moon over it. And yeah, yeah, every yeah. so often you'll see these articles that come out with, you know, like, oh, this is the the time that you can actually um, get the exact same placement <laughs> and phase of the moon. It happens very rarely. Yeah. And then you'll get this mad flood of people trying to recreate it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the placement of the stars and the time and the season, it makes it so that it's rare to, re- it's harder to reproduce. Yeah. Exactly. How sure long have you been doing the astrophotography for? <laughs> well, a long time. Oh, really? I yeah. Du- I used to do double exposures with uh-huh. film. That was my my poor man's version of astrophotography back in the day. And then with digital, I've been doing it for a long time. I mean, I, I never, I was always very fascinated with star trails. And so I was stacking and doing stuff way back. Mm. Uh, like early 2000s, wow. right. so, mid 2000s, something like that. And then uh, when the 5D2 came out, you know, it just became much more, much more doable. The 5D3 made it even better. Um, so that's a yeah. good example of using the right equipment for the right job. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, keep doing it. Also, you said you because you live out west, you're you're just a short drive from places where you can get this these kind of shots, and it's kind of an envy I have. I mean, the last time I saw stars. Was I was in early in the year for my sister's wedding in Jamaica, and Jamaica has not a lot of lights. And I looked up and I was like, "Holy crap! There's a lot yeah. of stars to look at." And you know, being from New York, I don't see these things. Yeah, so. I have I have to remind myself, um, or remind other people to always try to take the time to look out and and look look at the stars. That it, yeah. it's something that you shouldn't really take for granted. It's they're pretty cool, and there's a big effort to try to save. Um, super dark uh, night skies from light pollution. I hope that can happen. And uh, when my partner Tom finally listens to this episode, he's now in Arizona, so I'm sure he can. we can get him to start doing some of this work. Yeah. It's, some, it's a uh, lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's a great adventure. Yeah, so when uh, yeah, when my partner Tom looks at all this stuff, he'll be excited to try all this stuff out, and I'll have to get him to buy your ebook. You mentioned the ebook. I mean, it, it goes step by step on how to do things. It, it covers, 
it's a little old by today's mm-hmm. standards, but it, the the techniques still work out. I ended up uh, writing about uh, like about six or eight different uh, techniques that are mm-hmm. completely disparate, that are unrelated. Um, everything from like cinema crafts to star trails to um, a, a variety of things that just the idea was to be non sequitur in the sense that somebody would try something new and different. Mm-hmm. You know, and to think in terms of capturing time differently and there's different ways of doing it so that actually segues into into a final question but it definitely segues nicely into this and i want to you are pretty active in in social media so you've got a ton of followers on twitter pretty good facebook following and i saw that you write a lot for um outdoor photography and blogs like digital photography school and your own blog and just just finally just tell us this desire you have to share this wealth of information that you that you have in you with the world how come you do this how come yeah yeah i'm curious well i mean i i because i'm self-taught you know it's like um you know i think i think it's as much fun um to inspire people and to talk about things and to help other people learn um i get as much enjoyment out of that as as um as actually making the photos mm-hmm. um I want people to be able to experience the joy of, of creating and bringing your own vision to things. It's I'm, I'm I like to think of myself as rather selfless uh, on this front. Um, it's just it's just a fun thing to do, and I really am passionate about photography. And I've always been uh, very very much community first, and that's one of the reasons why I got into blogging and social media was an intuitive next step uh, when it came onto the scene seems like for a lot of people who are self-taught they do you can do something like that because you're you're there saying well there was nobody really around to help me do this and so i want to share that with the people who are also in that position who want to learn themselves yeah i like challenging people's thought process as well yeah um i think it makes for for good for good conversation and uh spurs people to try to think about things differently whether it's technique or some of the earlier philosophical things that we talked about earlier, you know, I think it's just very helpful. Uh, people should constantly be reevaluating and trying new things. Yeah. I asked that too. and might've been surprised, but I come from a, a slight generation of photographers and people who were very secretive about the work that they did. And I mean, as a quick example, when I worked at the stock agency image bank and I was an editor and so I would see all the pictures coming in and you know, out of curiosity, I'd ask a photographer, hey, where did you choose, you know, where did this, where did you take this? And they, they would clam up. They wouldn't tell me because their first thought was, well, he's going to go off and do the same shot. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, of course I'm going to go off and do the same shot. That's why I'm asking you. But nobody does the same shot. And there was one photographer, I don't know if you ever heard of him, uh, a guy named Harold Sund, who Doesn't used to shoot for, bell, but... yeah, look him up. He used to shoot for uh, Life and Look magazine. He was one of he's one of the nicest human beings in the universe. And I was once looking at pictures of the VLA in New Mexico. So the very large array, the uh, mm-hmm. radio telescopes great. that are out there. I didn't know where they were. I mean, I knew he said Socorro, New Mexico, but I was asking him and I asked him about information about the VLA. And he sent me the name of the person I had to contact. And he told me exactly where it was and what hotel. I he sent me all this information. And since then I've always been this thought of like, you know, why not share the information with everybody? Because it's only going to make the world better and it's better to have 
more people taking pictures and more people sharing this experience and hiding it under the covers of like, someone's going to try to copy me is just a, an insecure way to be. So I'm like, I applaud that for what you're doing and the amount of information you share. And you just sort of remind me of my, my dear friend, Harold, who uh, did the same. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I think more people should share. Yeah, I agree. So and this is part of the, uh, part of the reason why we're doing this podcast, Tom and I, we're doing workshops in the city and then we've petered those down a little bit. We figured like, how do we keep sharing this information with people about, you know, our idea about switching to manual, like getting out of the automatic mode of the camera and turning on manual, which is what you have to do with those six by 17 cameras that you're working yeah. with. But that's the idea. That was sort of the impetus behind this podcast is to just share that and find people like yourself who would join us and, uh, and continue the sharing process. So, uh, yeah, it's always fun. My pleasure. It's, uh, the more sharing, the better. Yeah. So thanks, Jim. I really appreciate you coming in at the last minute, sharing so much with us tonight. And give us some uh, places where we can find you. Yeah, um, there's always my blog, which is uh, jmg-galleries.com. And then um, I'm on Twitter. My handle is almost always Jim Goldstein, J-I-M-G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N. Um, and, uh, you can find me that way on just everything pretty much. Um, Google plus Facebook, <laughs> Twitter, uh, yeah, you're Instagram. pretty active on Twitter. Yeah. I've noticed. The, the yeah. Yeah. A lot yeah. Of stuff. I mean, I, I'm always very fond of Twitter and also, um, I, I still play the game on Facebook with, uh, my fan page there. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, anywhere I can, I mean, I, I go where people are talking. Great. Yeah. I'll post links to all these in my uh, in the show notes. I do want to post a link to your gallery with the um, astrophotography, especially. Yeah, yeah. Feel free. That's, yeah, the more that's, people that enjoy, the better. Yeah. Well, I could just look at it all day, so <laughs> I want to share that. So. You're too kind. So anyway, Jim, thanks so much for being on. And hopefully, uh, you know, we can get you on again um, when Tom's around and we'll, we'll talk about something else, too. Yeah, that would be awesome. I look forward to virtually meeting him on the podcast. Yeah, good. All right, everybody, that's our 40th episode. Thanks to Jim for coming on. And let's see, where can you find us? Oh, so our website is switchtomanual.com where you can find links to our Flickr feed and all sorts of other things. But we're on Twitter at switch the number two manual, so switch to manual. And if you uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, please, 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 please give us a review. Uh, we'd like to get this show a little bit more popular. Um, so download iTunes, give us, you know, stars and uh, feedback. We really appreciate that. And if you can uh, send us some chump change, like I asked at the beginning, that would be also really helpful to help us keep the show going. So that's it. And Tom will be back next show, hopefully. I think we'll be recording in a couple of weeks. So uh, stay tuned for that. And until then, I will see you later. And adios. Adios.